Now tonight's Bible study is explicitly X-rated. And I am not kidding. If you have little kids in here and you don't want them to hear about all kinds... And we're talking gross X-rated. I'm serious. If you don't care, leave. I don't care. But I'm not kidding around. So this is like gross vomit in the bag kind of stuff at parts. And uh, that's why we have children's church. So uh, you've been warned once, you've been warned twice, you've been warned three times. I don't want to hear anything about it later. Everybody clear? Yes, Pastor Mark. All right, two people are clear. All right. All right, we are in Ezekiel. The uh, We just finished off at the fifth chapter. Now, Ezekiel has, uh, as we were reading... Last time, some pretty amazing visions and stuff. I was like, wow, this guy was seeing all kinds of stuff. And, uh, and he was a very dramatic prophet. God had him do some very dramatic things. He had to lie on his left side for like 390 days. Then he had to flip over and lay on his other side for, I forget how many days, not, as, not nearly as many. And then he had to cook his food with his own poop. And then God said, and then he said, please, God, cut me a break. He said, okay, then use cow poop. So he used cow poop to cook it. And just very bizarre stuff. All of us had, he had to shave his head, uh, half his head, I think, whatever the deal was. Anyway, it, it was all very, very strange stuff that he kept doing in front of the Israelites. All as signs of speaking against them for their sins and the judgment of God that is coming. They're actually involved in it right now. This is, these guys are all part of the... Uh, one of the early waves of uh, refugees, if you want, uh, to uh, Babylon. But Israel is still under siege, um, and it's brutal uh, what happens to them. Eventually, the whole thing is just destroyed. Just a remnant of people are saved. And then eventually God brings them all back. But this is all because of their sin. So we finish off at at chapter 5, some dramatic stuff. Then he starts prophesying against this and that and... You know, you can read it certainly on your own time. Very dramatic, very strong words, condemnations of uh, against Israel and their sin. Then we get to chapter 16. Then he starts using uh, in chapter 16, and then again, even worse in chapter 23, which we'll try and see how far we get tonight. Uh, some pretty sexual imagery, which is really interesting because it's it's strange to understand why so many Christians. Uh, are so paranoid to discuss things sexual. Certainly in the Christian community at large, pastors are like, oh my gosh, you know, you can't say anything in church, you can't mention anything. But yet the Bible is very explicit, and God clearly does not have any problems with these analogies. And what's amazing is these words are not coming from the prophet using these analogies. This is God telling him to say these things. God is using these analogies. As I've said many times, God is not freaked out by sex. He's seen you naked. He can handle it. All right? So now he uses the allegory of an unfaithful woman. And these allegories, he kind of jumps between, it's at times like the allegory and what was actually happening kind of back and forth. And, and uh, we'll take a look at it here. So the word of the Lord came to me, chapter 16, verse 1. A son of man confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth 
were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite. Your mother was a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things, any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Talking about the birth of their nation. I mean, nobody thought anything of these people. So he uses the analogy of, of birth and just being tossed. He says, Then I passed by and I saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, Live. And I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew. You who were naked and bare. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you, I saw that you were old enough for love. Now, in, you have to understand in these Bible times, once a woman developed breasts, started menstruating, she was ready for sex and for marriage. These people were marrying really young. You know, people think I'm for young marriage. I am. 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. There's no statistical benefit now. They say past 22 to wait for marriage. It's all a bunch of nonsense. Everybody, oh, don't get me off on that. I'll take an hour or that long, but... But these guys were really young. As soon as you were like, da-da-da-da, you were ready to go. So when I saw you were old enough for love, I spread the cord of my garment over you, covered your nakedness, I gave you my solemn oath, and I entered into a covenant with you, using the analogy of taking, him, taking Israel as their wife. And you became mine. I bathed you with water, washed the blood from you, and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. He dolled her all up. This is uh, the analogy of how God blessed these chosen people and made something special out of them. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey, and olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen, and your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty, because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty, and you used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. See, now this is where we start drifting back from the analogy to um, some of the actual things that they were doing because they would take these high places and make these places of idol worship and stuff. That's what got them all in trouble uh, with God. Such things should not happen, uh, nor should they ever occur. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. Now, I don't know if you get the picture here. I was even, <laughs> even in my Jimmy Swaggart Bible, they pointed that out. They literally, the analogy here was took idols, uh, anatomically correct male idols, and engaged in sex with the idols. I think you get the picture here. Then you took your embroidered cloths and to put on them, and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also, the food I provided for you, the fine flour, olive oil, and honey, I gave you to eat. You offered as fragrant incense before them. That is what happened, declares the Sovereign Lord. You, and you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food 
to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? Again, part analogy, part reality. They were very sexually explicit as part of idol worship. Again, it wasn't just that they bowed down to an idol, which is bad enough. It's all the stuff that they did. I mean, when you're talking about what these people did, as I've said to you many, many times, was it be enough to gag a maggot. I mean, they were horrible. And they literally would take their children and sacrifice them to these uh, deities. Uh, you slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. In all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and barren, kicking around in your blood. Woe, woe to you, declares the sovereign Lord. In addition to all your other wickedness, you built a mound for yourself and made a lofty shrine in every public square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty shrines and degraded your beauty, offering your body with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by. You engaged in prostitution with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, and provoked me to anger with your increasing promiscuity. So I stretched out my hand against you and reduced your territory. I gave you over to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines who were shocked by your lewd conduct. You engaged in prostitution with the Assyrians too because you were insatiable. And even after that, you were still not satisfied. Uh, it's like they couldn't get enough sex is the analogy that God is using. Now, whether this is literally or just symbolically, whatever, you get the picture. Then you increased your promiscuity to include Babylonia, a land of merchants. But even with this, you were not satisfied. How weak-willed you were, declares the sovereign Lord. When you do all these things, acting like brazen prostitutes, when you built your mounds at the head of every street and made your lofty shrines in every public square, you were unlike a prostitute because you scorned payment. So check this out. You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. Every prostitute receives a fee. But you give gifts to your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favors. So in your prostitution, you are the opposite of others. No one runs after you for favors. You are the very opposite. You give payment and none is given to you. In other words, their motivation wasn't even for money. I mean, at least you could understand a woman who would be desperate and unable to take care of herself and her only... Uh, way to turn to support herself would be prostitution. There's a certain amount of compassion in that, even though it's the wrong way to go. I mean, you want to get it? You know what I'm talking about? But what he's using the analogy here is, you were just so into the sex, you didn't even want the money. You were just so caught up in the lifestyle of being so unfaithful to me. Therefore, you prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says, because you poured out your wealth and exposed your nakedness and your promiscuity with your lovers and because of all your detestable idols and because you gave them your children's blood. Therefore, I'm going to gather all your lovers with whom you have found pleasure, those you loved as well as those you hated, and I will gather them against you from all around and will strip you in front of them and they will all see your nakedness. I will sentence you to the punishment of women who commit adultery and who shed blood. That punishment is death, is what he's talking about. And literally death came to millions, or how, I don't know how many people were there, but whatever was left in that nation, I presume was in the millions. I will bring upon you the blood vengeance of my wrath and jealous anger. Uh, and by the way, the Bible says God is a jealous God. Now, there's, there's two definitions of, of jealousy. One is the kind that God's talking about, the Bible talks about. Intolerant of unfaithfulness. God is intolerant of unfaithfulness. Your spouse should be very jealous when it comes to you being intolerant of you being unfaithful to them. They're jealous. No deal. Okay. Uh, then there's the uh, 
suspicion of unfaithfulness and paranoia and psycho craziness, that's not good jealousy. You know, some you smile at somebody from the opposite sex and your thought school's crazy. You know, well, they need to check their medication, okay? So, uh, and there's people like that. That's the bad jealousy on, on, it is not uh, based in reality. God's jealousy was based in reality. They were unfaithful. He is intolerant of unfaithfulness. Uh, then I will hand you over to your lovers and they will tear down your mounds and destroy your lofty shrines. They will strip you of your clothes and take your fine jewelry and leave you naked and bare. They will bring a mob against you who will stone you and hack you to pieces with their swords. They will burn down your houses and inflict punishment on you in the sight of many women. I will put a stop to your prostitution and you will no longer pay your lovers. Then again, just it's the twist on it. And again, I'm sure this is at, uh, the allegory here, but he's using the sexual analogy that they were so into their sin, they freely, there was, they were asking for no benefit. They just wanted to sin. They just wanted, whatever way they could sin against God, they freely did it. These people were unbelievably out of control. Then in my wrath against you, or then my wrath against you will subside and my jealous anger will turn away from you and I will come and no longer be angry after I kick your butt, basically is what he's saying. Because you did not remember the days of your youth, but enraged me with all these things, I will surely bring down on your head what you have done, declares the sovereign Lord. Did you not add lewdness to all your other detestable practices? So now he's actually getting back to the literacy of what they were doing. Everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb about you. Like mother, like daughter. You are a true daughter of your mother who despised her husband and her children, and you are a true sister of your sisters who despised their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite, your father an Amorite. Your older sister was Samaria, who lived to the north of you with her daughters. And your younger sister, who lived to the south of you with her daughters, was Sodom. Uh, you, again, the analogies here, which he's going to use again in, in this other chapter, we'll, we'll jump to in a minute. Um, those were to the north, or the northern tribes, had already been destroyed because of their sin. And use the analogy of those to the south, which was Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah had been totally destroyed because of their sins. And he's basically saying, you're, you're, you're still like them. Even though I called you out and made you something special, you still wanted to be like them. And, and make no mistake, there's always that temptation, uh, even to this day, as people of faith. Uh, you know, we are called to be different than everybody else around us. We're not to think like the pagan culture in which we live. And make no mistake, what people think uh, in our culture today, radio, television, politics, the whole thing is, is really mostly just a very broken anti-God or amoral society at best. We're not to think like them. The challenge of Christianity has always been to be in the world but not to be affected by it. This happened from the very earliest days of Christianity. We are to be different. But that's very uncomfortable for a lot of people because there is this pull in people where we want to be like everybody else. We want to fit in. We want to, and certainly your young people will be brought up in that temptation. Or they want to be like their friends because they don't want to be different, you know, but you need to get comfortable with being different. Amen. There you go. You not only walked in their ways and copied their detestable practices, but in all your ways you soon became more depraved than they. That was really the kicker. God had sent them into the promised land to destroy these nations that were so horrible. So they come in, they wipe them all out, God starts blessing them, and then they start corrupting themselves. 
And they start allowing the cultures, even on the peripherals, to start affecting them. And in the end, the children of Israel became more gross and violent and sexually immoral and the whole thing uh, even worse than the nations that they had to place, uh, displaced in the first place. That's why God had just had it with these people and sent such destruction on them. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. And then he goes on and on uh, talking more about these, this anal- analogy, how th- they were much worse than uh, the nations around them. Then he goes in and he starts prophesying again and using different analogies and uh, lamenting the leaders of Israel who've corrupted themselves and rebel- rebellious Israel and talks about God's judgment that, that you know eventually everything's going to be okay because he's going to restore everything and talks and keeps laying out to them um, the uh, what do you call it uh, their sins and stuff like that. Uh, chapter 22, um, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, will you judge her? Will you judge the city of bloodshed? Then confront her with all her detestable practices and say, this is what the Lord sovereign, this is what the sovereign Lord says, O city that brings on herself doomed by shedding blood in her midst and defiles herself by making idols. You've become guilty because of the blood you've shed and you've become defiled by the idols that you've made. You've brought your days to a close and the ends of your years has come. Therefore, I will make you an object of scorn to the nations and a laughing stock to all the countries. Those who are near and those who are far away will mock you, an infamous silly full of turmoil. See how each of the princes of Israel who are in you uses his power to shed blood. In you, they've treated father and mother with contempt. In you, they've oppressed the alien and mistreated the fatherless and the widow. You have despised my holy things, desecrated my Sabbath. You are slanderous men bent on shedding blood. In you are those who eat the mountain, at the mountain shrines and commit lewd acts. In you are those who dishonor their father's bed for committing sexual sin. In you are those who violate women during their period uh, when you are ceremonially unclean. In you, one man commits detestable offense with his neighbor's wife. Another shamefully defiles his daughter-in-law. Another violates his sister, his own father's daughter which means, yeah, your own sister. Wow. Uh, and he's not talking allegories here. These are literally what they were doing. They, they sexually, they had become so debased and violent. They were violent. They were killing people. They'd have sex with everybody and anything. In you men accept bribes to shed blood. You take usury and excessive interest. You make unjust gain from your neighbors by extortion. And you've forgotten me, declares the Lord. It's real interesting. As you read Ezekiel, you start getting a real picture of literally some of the things that they were they had done and were guilty of. When you read it like as we were reading in Kings, it just says, you know, the Lord says, you have forgotten me, and therefore I'm going to destroy you. And when you read that, you go, well, that seems kind of harsh. You know, it's got, but when, <laughs> when he says, you forgot me, in Ezekiel, I like get a picture of what they were doing. These guys had just totally, and these were, remember, the people who had come out of Egypt that God had done all these miracles and given them the Ten Commandments and the laws of God and how to live righteously before Him and blessed them and prospered them and did all this and now they had become unbelievably disgusting pigs. Violent, sexually immoral. Uh, And he keeps on talking about it, the robberies, everything else that they did. 
Then we get to chapter 23. And there, here again, he goes back into sexual analogies of their unfaithfulness. So chapter 23, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, there were two women, daughters of the same mother. They became prostitutes. Basically giving them a story, but using the analogy. They became prostitutes in Egypt, engaging in prostitution from their youth. In that land, their breasts were fondled and their virgin bosoms caressed. The older name was named Ohala, and her sister was Ohaliba. Ohiliba. I don't know. Ohiliba. Sheesh, don't name your kids that. They were mine and gave birth to sons and daughters. Ohala is Samaria. Ohiliba is Jerusalem. So he's using these, he's saying, okay, this is the analogy. Samaria, the northern tribes, and then Jerusalem, the southern tribes. These are all supposed to be the people of God. And because they were the two nations, he referred to them as two sisters who were prostitutes, unfaithful. Ohala engaged in prostitution while she was still mine, and she lusted after her lovers, the Assyrians, warriors clothed in blue, governors and commanders, all of them handsome young men, mounted horsemen. She gave herself as a prostitute to all the elite of the Assyrians and defiled herself with all the idols of everyone she lusted after. She did not give up the prostitution she began in Egypt when during her youth men slept with her, caressed her virgin bosom, and poured out their lust upon her. Therefore I handed her over to her lovers, the Assyrians, for whom she lusted. They stripped her naked, took away her sons and daughters, and killed her with the sword. She became a byword among women, and punishment was inflicted on her. Her sister, Ohiliba, or however you say it, saw this, which, you know, the, the terrible end that she wound up in, yet in her lust and prostitution, she was even more depraved than her sister. She too lusted after the Assyrians, governors and commanders, warriors in full dress, mounted horsemen, all handsome young men. I saw that she too defiled herself. Both of them went the same way. But she carried her prostitution still further. She saw men portrayed on a wall, figures of Chaldeans portrayed in red with belts around their waist and flowing turbans on their heads. All of them looked like Babylonian chariot officers, natives of Chaldea. So she was already a prostitute, already caught up in her lust up to her eyeballs. And then she sees these drawings of these men who are really masculine, really handsome men. And she lusted after them even more. As soon as she saw them, she lusted after them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. Then the Babylonians came to her, to the bed of love, and in their lust they defiled her. After she had been defiled by them, she turned away from them in disgust. When she carried on her prostitution openly and exposed her nakedness, I turned away from her in disgust, just as I had turned away from her sister. Yet she became more and more promiscuous as she recalled the days of her youth when she was a prostitute in Egypt. And and this <laughs> this is probably the most sexually gross scripture in the entire Bible. Verse 20. There she lusted after her lovers whose genitals were like that of donkeys. You get the picture. They were hung, shall we say. 
And then speaks of their ejaculations. This is really gross. Whose emissions were like that of horses. There you have it. How's that a Bible verse? And here's God talking. There she lusted after her lovers whose genitals were like that of donkeys and whose emissions were like that of horses. Pretty gross sexual analogies there. Yet this is God Almighty talking. Now how we have a God like this, who this and other places in the Bible has no problem referring to sexual things, we created a church that, oh my gosh, you can't say wiener, oh, oh, it'll be the end of the world. I don't understand it. That we're so afraid, and we're afraid to speak of anything, so we don't speak of anything, and then we let the world tell our kids how to think, and it creates a disaster. Dear God in heaven, people think I'm gross. God's a lot grosser than I am. So you longed for the lewdness of your youth when in Egypt your bosom was caressed and your young breasts fondled. You got enough of this picture here? On and on it goes. And certainly you can read it on your own time, but uh, it's pretty gross and nasty. And uh, it's just fascinating to hear these things and certainly the way that God talks again I'm just always amazed at how uncomfortable people are talking about sexual things in the church I, I was actually in a uh, a meeting in Arizona Phoenix or Scottsdale or whatever and a pastor was reading the scripture in, in Psalms or Proverbs or whatever it says about delighting thyself in the breasts of the wife of thy youth uh, and when he gave, came to it, he read it, he changed it, so he didn't say any of those words. I thought, here's a pastor editing the Bible. Apparently we need to edit the Bible. I was so mad, I wanted to throw something at him. thought, <laughs> you idiot. No wonder so many people are messed up today. We don't want to talk about things. Uh, anyway, pretty amazing stuff. You certainly get the picture if you read through the whole thing. He's very, very strong in many, many ways and jumps all over the place and uses all kinds of analogies, sexual and otherwise, to get across the point that these people are in a mess and there's no hope for them. And it's just a matter of time. I don't know what the time frame is here, but within, you know, is it a year, two years, months? I don't know. Eventually, all of Jerusalem is absolutely decimated and torn to pieces and what's left of the Jewish nation is little to nothing and they're taken off into captivity for 70, 75 years whatever it is and then God brings them all back but uh, some pretty fascinating stuff you know I'm, I'm convinced that uh, one of the problems that we have with morality today is because the church doesn't want to talk about these things we're scared to death about talking about, and I don't think it's helpful to people. And uh, people get confused, and they get their information from a broken culture. They're not afraid to talk about these things. Now, what really happened, I think, what got us in trouble is, in the beginning, uh, you have to st- understand that all of Christianity in the beginning was Jewish. In fact, in the beginning, Christians didn't think you could be a Christian if you weren't Jewish. You know. Which is amazing, because every once in a while you'll hear some incredibly stupid people who claim to be Christians say horrible things about Jews. And how dumb can you be? I mean, Jesus was a Jew. His mom was a Jew. 
everybody who wrote this thing, except for maybe one, was a Jew. How can any Christian say, oh, God, you know, we got to hate them Jews because we need to fight for our God Christian heritage. Are you an idiot? How can you possibly be so stupid? You know, so in the beginning, Jews, you didn't, unless you became a Jew, you couldn't even be Christian. And then all of a sudden, God comes along and reveals to them, no, that's not true. The gospel can go to everybody that we read about in the book of Acts. And uh, wow, well, the Jews went along with it for a while, but they got mad because they lived by the Old Testament law, which we've skimmed through, which is pretty brutal. We're talking the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments were just the top ten. There were hundreds of these things. I mean, they had rules about everything. And uh, it was quite, quite brutal, what you could eat, what you couldn't eat, when you could work, when you couldn't work, when you could have sex, when you couldn't have sex. I mean, on and on. I mean, they had rules about everything. And then, all of a sudden, these people come to Christ, and they're, at first they're happy, but then they said that, well, they don't have to live by those rules. We just live by basic rules of morality and what Jesus taught us and, and, the, and, and, and the Holy Spirit and the, and the rule of love. Love does no evil to its neighbor. You know, thou shalt not steal. We don't really need that law because you wouldn't do that if you're walking in love. All those kinds of things. Well, anyway, the Jewish community got really, really angry uh, at the Christians for spreading this good news without holding them to the Old Testament law. And the early persecution of the church was pretty much motivated by Jews who were following Paul all over the place, trying to persecute him and, and kill him because they were mad because he was telling them that people could know God without being, obeying all these laws. It became a major problem. Anyway, at some point, and I don't know where in history this exactly happened, but at some point, the Jewish nation pretty much just said, no! And they didn't want to have anything to do with Christianity. And then there was that schism. Uh, the good news is we were able to take the gospel to nations who had never heard about God and let them know they could experience God through faith in Jesus Christ. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You don't do it by obeying all the laws or being by circumcised or all these different things that was Jewish tradition. And, and that's how Christianity spread. And thank God, that's how we've been, become part of the kingdom of God. But what happened to us is that when we broke away from Judaism, or I shouldn't say we, they broke away from us, we lost thousands of years of looking at sex in a godly perspective. Where they weren't freaked out about it. Do you know Jewish rabbis used to sit down with young men and explain to them in explicit detail how to bring a woman to orgasm? Can you imagine having that conversation with your pastor? You know, I mean, they, this is what they talked about. They were very comfortable. With it. They were sex was a good thing, it was a healthy thing, it was a fabulous thing. Do it right. But when the Christians came, all their only everybody who's coming into the Christian faith, their only experience with sex was in the context of lust. And they didn't, they didn't know, how do, I, how do you do it right? Can you possibly do it right? And of course, if you look at the early days of the Christian church, uh, you know, by this time Catholicism was setting in real strong, and they really struggled with it. And then they said, you know, I, I don't, how, how can you possibly love God and have sex? And it became a real problem. And they started having all kinds of rules. Uh, at one point, they were encouraging basically sexless marriages. You could get married... But don't have sex. <laughs> you can imagine the tension in those homes, you know. And and then they'd had all kinds of other rules, you know. Well, you know, don't have sex on Sunday out of respect for Christ's resurrection, and don't have sex on Monday out of respect for souls, and and don't have respect on don't have sex on Friday out of respect for Christ's death, 
And don't have sex on Saturday out of respect for the Virgin Mary. I think there was like a day or two a week, maybe, you could get in. Uh, and in the, in, the, in the beginning, the popes and the priests, they were all married. They had, they had families. But they couldn't. How can you possibly enjoy something like this when the only context of it was dirty? And they couldn't handle it. And uh, so then they said, well, we can take a wife and build a home. You know, and you could only have sex for procreation. If you're going to have a child, but other than that, then you couldn't have sex. And then they finally got to the point you couldn't have sex at all. And then they finally said, uh, you can't be married at all. That's where they came down with it. You can't, how could you possibly serve God as a priest and have sex? That makes you dirty. You see, that's where we get all this, you know, we got a good 1500 years of craziness when it came to sexual things in the church. And, and everybody was just really uncomfortable with it. And, uh, um, you know, it got so bad that, uh, you know, if you were going to be a priest or you couldn't talk to any woman, you couldn't even talk to your own mother, they'd beat you because and then women became, you know, and then all this weird craziness. And I think it's because we had lost thousands of years at looking things in a right way, looking at the wonderful way that God uh, talks about sex. Certainly the comfort level, Ezekiel, holy cow, referring to sexual things, didn't embarrass God at all. You know, of course, people weren't reading the Old Testament. Most people at that time were totally illiterate anyway. It wasn't until, what, Gutenberg and whatever that people even started reading the Bible. And, uh, you know, you would think now after a few hundred years of knowing better, we'd get better at this, but we still struggle with these things. And it's a, it's a mystery to me. So uh, clearly we need to Teach things the right way and, and, uh, and do things right. Um, there's a point I wanted to make. I can't remember what it was. Uh, I can't remember what it was. You know, I, I, get, uh, I get emails a lot. I don't know how many of you ever listen to my radio program uh, that you can listen on, on the internet, but... Uh, I get emails all the time from mostly women who, single women, who are struggling with morality. They don't understand. They, they, they know what the Bible ideally holds up, but they don't want to, they can't live up to it because they're, they're being affected by all kinds of uh, culture around them that pushes them to go in a wrong direction. And, and obviously men too that are very, very bad, but most of the people that uh, send me the emails are women. And, uh, and, and I've just been so disturbed <laughs> about how many single women, and I'm talking of all ages, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, who start dating and just start having sex with everybody and anybody that they're dating. And I think, what are you doing? You know? And, uh, and this is kind of prevalent throughout the whole Christian community. And again, the church doesn't talk about these things. So they hear everything from Oprah and from you know, late night TV and MTV and everybody. They're all talking a whole different set of morality. God forbid we mention anything about these things. And, and I think that's where the confusion comes in. And, and that's why it ticks me off. I think the church needs to start talking about these things. Why to do things right. How to do things right. Um, uh, one of the things I, I've, I think that I've, I've picked up from some of these emails and conversations that I've had with women who struggle with these things, and obviously the guys are bad too because they're clawing all over these girls, but um, 
a lot of them, they get the idea that, well, it doesn't matter anymore because I'm not a virgin. You know, I'm not a virgin, so it doesn't matter. They, they, they think, and, and, and trying to get the, the idea through their head that morality is a condition of the heart, not a condition of one's a vagina. Are you hearing me? I mean, they literally think, well, as long as I'm not a virgin, it doesn't matter anymore. Because I blew it, I didn't, you know, so then everything's game and I go dating and just, and some people, obviously, a lot of women think that's the only way they can get guys' attention. I, <laughs> I'll never forget the email I got from one guy. He said, you know, I was dating, I, I dated this lady from your church. I don't mean, I don't know who she was. Hopefully she's not here tonight. But, uh, and uh, took her to a, uh, a do you remember the drive-in theater? And, I, and I, I got up to go get some popcorn and stuff. I came back, she was totally naked. <laughs> I think, how do you get naked on the first date? Good Lord! Of course, he just, whoa! <laughs> Put your clothes on, you know. But, you know, that's their worldview. Well, this is, what, this is how I get a guy, you know. Or, you know, others are, well, you know, are you having sex with a guy? Well, yeah, but we've been dating for a while. Really, how long? Six weeks. <sighs> you know, they just, they don't get it. They just don't get it. They keep crossing lines. And then they wonder why they keep attracting bad men. What kind of behavior attracts bad men? It doesn't attract good men. The guy who saw this was a good guy. So that was the end of it. He walked out on the deal. You know? When, you're, when you keep doing these things and you keep... Oh my goodness gracious, you know? But this whole idea of doing things right and not just throwing your body one way or the other or... And then everybody debates and well, you know, well, what is sex today? You know, the whole Bill Clinton syndrome. You know. And people are confused. You know, just look anything involving this general area <laughs> is sex. Stop. Do these things right, for heaven's sakes. But anyway, it's hard to talk about these issues. I talk a lot about in my seminars when I travel around and and, and things. But uh, anyway, for all those I know lots of people watch us by, via internet, listen to these Bible studies via internet all over the world. I think I got an email today from somebody in Czechoslovakia or something asking a question about one of our Bible studies one night. But, uh, you know, for those who think I go too far, anyway, there's Ezekiel, baby. He wasn't afraid to talk about anything and use all kinds of weird analogies. Uh, a few more minutes, and then we've got some people who are going to get baptized tonight. It was kind of very, very cool. But uh, let's, uh, let's look at chapter 24, verse 15. Uh, one event here in Ezekiel's life. His wife dies. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, with one blow, I'm about to take away from you the delight of your eyes. Isn't that a beautiful thing? The way he said it was not a beautiful thing, he's going to kill his wife, but it's a, it's a beautiful, the way he refers to his wife. The delight of your eyes. Isn't that fabulous? Here's this geezer prophet, man. And his wife to him is still the delight of of his eyes. There's a beautiful thing. And God says, yet do not lament or weep or shed any tears. You can groan quietly, but do not mourn for the dead. So God brings this on him uh, as an analogy of, you know, the death and destruction that's going to be happening because people's sons and daughters are going to be killed in Jerusalem and, and uh, you know, very, very sad. Um, Probably about the only other thing of, of real interest in uh, Ezekiel. I mean, there's all kinds of things, but probably the biggest one. Uh, let's catch us real quick. 
chapter 37. Then we'll pretty much be done with Ezekiel. There's a lot more chapters, but you can read it. You're starting to get the idea here of, uh, of what this prophet was doing, crying out to the people. Well, we'll end with this, and then we'll pick it up. Uh, go, we'll go into the book of Daniel, which is a fascinating book. And I'm looking forward to do that. Daniel, who is also part of the people who've been taken into captivity. And this whole Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So it's fabulous stuff. And, and some of the end time prophecies. Daniel is great, great stuff. Wait, I'm looking forward to that. But let's end with this. Because this is a very, very famous uh, portion of scripture. And probably Ezekiel's most famous vision. Uh, 37 verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. Remember, he'd see all kinds of strange visions and stuff and the spirit of God would just pick him up and carry him around. I mean, this guy's like, wow. So he gets carried out in this vision and he sat in a valley and it was full of bones. And he, lay, he led me back and forth among them and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he asked me this question, son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life and you will know that I'm the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked, and the tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. So he speaks of these bones, they all connect together, you know. This is actually, if you ever heard the old song, you know, you know, the foot bones connected to the leg bone, the leg bones connected to the hip bone, da-da, hear the word of the Lord. It comes from this. That's where that, that's all, you know, them bones, them bones, them dry bones. So, uh, um, so uh, he sees this all come together, and now the bones have come together, the skeletons and everything, and then all of a sudden flesh covers them, but they're still just laying there. And then he says to me, son, uh, he says, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them, uh, they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone and we are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. So it's a prophecy of um, the uh, uh, of the restoration of the nation after all this death and destruction. He saw in the vision of the bones, and he speaks in these bones, and apparent, and he speaks, and eventually they all stand up, and he sees this vast army of of dead that had been brought to life, and it's a prophecy of how God's going to restore Israel, uh, uh, the the Jewish nation, which we'll eventually get to as we're studying all that. So that's the famous vision of the Valley of Dry Bones that uh, Ezekiel had, and uh, anyway, there's other prophecies through here that uh, some people use uh, looking at the end times and stuff but we'll pretty much end Ezekiel there and then uh, we'll take a look at Daniel next and very very fascinating stuff with Daniel so there you have it